0: people of God, we are so very thankful that Dr. Bill Switzer will be preaching the word of God to us. We've been supporting Bill, praying for Bill, and for the ministry of the congregation there in Gateshead and other church plants in England for a long, long time. There are very few churches in the United Kingdom, in England in particular, that actually hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Lord has raised up Bill along with others working with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and Wales to establish churches throughout England that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and minister in his name and faithfully in accord with our confessional standards. And so we have much for which to be thankful in our relationship with Bill. I count him a a personal friend and so it brings me a great deal of joy that he is ministering to our congregation. This faithful man needs our prayers, and we will hear from other missionaries and their prayer requests later in the service, but now let us give our attention to the reading and proclamation of the Word of God.
1: Let us turn now in Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In your pew Bibles, that's page 961, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And brethren, I I neglected to mention, please stand for the reading of God's word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise." For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in, In this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first roots of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we ask that you would speak to us in your word. We know, Lord, it is not the word of man or of men, but the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we need him, your Spirit, in order that we might receive it and understand We pray, Lord, that you'd send your spirit in abundance among us, that this word might be illumined to our salvation and to our blessing. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. It is indeed a great delight to be with you again. Um, I I surely value greatly our partnership in the gospel and our, our friendship. And I do convey the greetings of the English Church to you. I want you to be encouraged that your prayers are being answered. The things that we prayed for, they take time sometimes, but they are happening. God is good and the church is being raised up. The churches are being raised up in England. I also want to say by word of preface um, that I never never come with a particular issue of of a church, or at least certainly not of any individual. But of things that I see in general of our contemporary church, uh, sometimes those things are being addressed. And uh, so I, I don't mean at all to um, say something about this church when I count among the very, very best in the entire PCA, but rather of things that are afflicting uh, all the churches in our day. So, with that being said, let me say, uh, last time, if you recall, I I spoke on the mission of the church. But the mission of the church actually presupposes something else very, very basic, and which I did not in previous times think was necessary to restate or reiterate or explicate, and that is the true gospel. the, The whole idea of sending out a mission Uh, effort sending out missionaries with the gospel to preach to lost human beings of course presupposes we know what that gospel is and that we are sending missionaries who are going to preach that gospel. But we cannot take that for granted. Least of all today. Because there's actually a lot of confusion about the gospel. Now we hear tons of talk about the gospel. Gospel this and gospel that. But at least to my mind there perhaps is less clarity about the gospel today than there has been since the days of the Reformation. And we have to say that the, the church, I would say the American church, is not terribly discerning right now. And our tendency, and I, I want us to always deal in charity with people. That is not the issue. We deal personally in great charity, and we do not easily receive reports of evil or sin or any of those things. But with regard to the doctrine that teachers teach, we need to be more discerning. Our tendency is to imagine that anyone who says they have the gospel or preaches the gospel is talking about the same gospel that Paul preached and the apostles preached. But friends, that has never been a reasonable assumption. Because within the pages of the New Testament itself, Paul says, Say in Galatians 1.9, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 11.4, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He is speaking to one of his own churches that he planted. So, if we know that there were other Gospels being preached in other, other you know, in, in Paul's day, and that good people in his churches sometimes believed them. what can we say about our day? Can we believe that we're in better shape than when the Apostles walked the earth? Probably not. And so we can only believe that there must be other Gospels in circulation right now. What are they? What, what might they be? well, I have a few possibilities. First of all, the health and wealth gospel. You probably know that one. The basic idea is that as a child of God, your life in this world should be one of material blessing. Health and wealth. It's epitomized by Joel Osteen's best-selling book Your Best Life Now, and I want you to keep that in your mind. Fix it in your li- in your mind that your best life now. And that book sold over 4 million copies. And his church is one of the biggest churches in the United States. And if we were to gauge truth by success, we would all have to believe in that gospel. But praise God, that gospel was also roundly critiqued by most evangelical leaders. And there are a few who, who want to take the Bible seriously that it would also believe that particular health and wealth gospel. So we're thankful for that. But the second one is a little more subtle. The second one is called the Life Enhancement Gospel. I don't know if you've heard of this one. But it amounts, essentially, it boils down to the same thing, but it's far more subtle. The Life Enhancement Gospel is illustrated most clearly in the changes made to that evangelism program you all know, which is called Evangelism Explosion. Has any of you ever heard that diagnostic question, if you were to die tonight on a scale of 1 to 10, how certain would you be that you'd go to heaven? Have you heard? Raise your hand if you heard that. There you go. Most of us have. That's evangelism explosion. And as the EE website explains, historically EE's thread of logic has been this, finding out what a person is basing their hope on to be right with God or to have eternal life. Once that is determined and assuming that it is some kind of works hope, which it typically is, EE gospel presentation tactfully points out the hopelessness of trying to be good enough to satisfy God's requirements And then moves on to explain God's real provision through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. Great. And if that is the gospel you believe, good on you because that's the real gospel. A new approach, though. We have discovered that for many, though not all, which is why we keep the standard diagnostic questions available on the shelf somewhere, the idea of trying to obtain righteousness with God is not a key question that is perceived as relevant to a secular postmodern thinker. If not that issue, then what is a more burning question of the mind in the mind of many non-Christians? And I'm quoting straight from their website. We have found that many people are saying, I don't know anything about eternal life or trying to get there. My problem is that life doesn't make any sense now. Instead of telling me about eternal life, tell me how my life can make sense of this mess now. Do you hear that? And therefore, the thread of logic begins in a different way. We first ask a person on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your life right now? Then what would you make your life a 9 or 10? These are much less aggressive questions than the EE diagnostic questions. Indeed, they do not even mention hell or eternal life. However, still quoting, the follow-up question begins to move in a more spiritual context, so that's good, which is, do you think knowing about God would move you one way or another on that scale? Okay. That is the life enhancement gospel. Moving the needle of your life right now. And sadly, EE has received only scant criticism for that move. Ground, huge, sea change. And many people assume that the life enhancement gospel is about as valid and saving as the gospel it replaced. Well, thirdly, we have the cultural transformation gospel. And this one takes what the first two did at the individual level, that the gospel is about making things better right now in your life, and makes it collective and societal and about the the culture. And I'll read you a definition of the gospel that appears on a church website. It asks the question, what is the gospel? And it answers in this way, it is the announcement, literally good news, that Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of salvation for the entire cosmos. And so churches that espouse this gospel also speak in very collective and universalistic terms like quote, we exist to help build a great city for all people. Not, we exist to preach the gospel to all the people of our city, but we exist to build a great city for all people. Now sad to say those quotes didn't come from liberal denominations but from evangelical reformed churches that would agree with us in saying that they believe in inspired scripture. And friends, there are many things that are true in this word of God that are not the gospel, all right? You can say something that is true and it not be the gospel. I hope you understand that. If I were to, I I could turn in Exodus to the 10 commandments and I could say, honor your father and your mother. And children, young people, and every last one of you would stand condemned before a holy God because you haven't done it. And, and you older people and middle-aged people, you haven't done it either. That's not the gospel. That's the law, and we would be condemned. Well, let's be very clear then about things. Um, I want to say that there are probably three common threads to these other gospels. I mentioned three examples, but now there are three common threads. first is they don't mention sin, hell, or the atonement. They don't mention sin, hell, or the atonement, and that is because, two, they are focused on the problems of this world and of, rather than of eternity. But because the atonement wasn't actually designed to fix the problems of this present world right now, And you understand that this world is just as fallen and under the curse as it was before the cross. Because of that problem, number three, they require some form of work rather than grace alone through faith alone. And that's always what it gets down to, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, there is no resting in the completed work of Christ. Instead, there are seven steps that you need to take you need to work on in order to quote, live your best life now. Faith in Christ is not an instant eternal life, a transition instantly into eternal life, but a stepping stone that will eventually move that five on your scale of one to ten to a nine or a ten, if you live your life well enough according to these principles. And the resurrection is only the beginning of the salvation for the entire cosmos. God is in the process of restoring shalom for the the creation, but he needs a lot of help to do it. He apparently needs the efforts of thousands of of staff members and hardworking volunteers in order to, quote, transform the city before the gospel actually comes into effect. The thing that it promises, which is redemption for the whole cosmos, actually happens. Do you see what I mean? The business end of these false gospels is your works. Friends, if sure good news requires works to work, it's not good news, and it's certainly not the gospel that Paul preached. All right, so let's be very clear about that one true gospel, and for that we turn again to Paul's statement of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, the title this morning is The Gospel Paul Preached, and I have these three points. One, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Secondly, the gospel solves eternal problems. And third, the gospel requires faith alone. So first, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so, if you get nothing else from this, friends, you will surely get that the gospel is news about actual events that happened. It's news. About which events? About the death of Christ on the cross. And we are not left to, de- to define for ourselves what that death was because typically error in all its forms is going to try to redefine what that death was all about. But it says so right here in Scripture. You don't have to wonder. It says Christ died for our sins. And that is in line with everything else that Paul ever said about the subject of the cross. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That is what you're being saved from ra- the wrath of God. Not that things are, are bad in the city, the wrath of God. And that's confirmed later on in this very chapter. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, you see? Not still in your poverty, not still in your mediocrity. You are still in your sins. And so if you're not talking about sin, you are not talking about the true gospel because that is why Christ died. And moreover, our text said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul is, of course, because we don't, we don't get to define in any sense what this was about. We must let Scripture define it. And Paul's, of course, speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures, about prophecy like what was read in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. What a What a terrible, in the real classic sense of that word, what a terrible phrase that is. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, there is nothing relevant in a culture affirming sense in those words. I tremble to speak that the living God brought his son to grief, to great pain and suffering and to death. But friends, that is the only hope that we have. This death on the cross, it was not for any purpose that we can think of. It was for our sins. That's just how serious the problem was. And the other essential event comes in verse 4, remember it's about the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, those things. He really was dead, proven by his burial, and he rose again the third day, it's not disconnected, because the resurrection is a proof positive that the atonement worked. He would not have died had not the sins of others been laid upon him because death and sin are inextricably linked. You don't have death apart from sin, and you have a sinless Savior. The only way he could possibly die is that the sins of others were laid upon him, and he would not have risen had not he fully atoned for those sins. That's how you know it works, because he rose again the third day, and that's Peter's logic in, in Acts 2 him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It's impossible that a sinless Savior who fully atoned for all the sins that were laid upon him should remain in a tomb. That's why the resurrection is such an essential part of the gospel, the apostolic gospel which the church is based. Because a cross alone with no resurrection does nothing. Lots of people died on Roman crosses, lots and lots. But only one rose again the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because although that dirty, all you remember from Zechariah chapter 3, how this Zechariah the high priest representing all the people of God was clothed with filthy rags, and Christ took it off of him. But then he put it on himself and bore them to the cross. And if he was still wearing that, he would not have risen again. But he paid the last bit. He drained down that cup of the wrath of God and finally it was according to the scriptures in verse four it's not just it was about the cross it's not just the cross is defined that it was for our sins and that he was buried and he rose again the third day all these but all this was according to the scriptures And in the very same place, in Isaiah 53, verse 10, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The same word, pleasure, now in a very different way. The Lord was pleased to bring him to grief, but now, now the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. All that bringing one message very clearly, and that is that Christ, yes, he'll die, but he'll rise again. What is the gospel, friends? According to Paul, it's the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news. Now, my second point is to say this, the gospel solves eternal problems eternal problems. And here I'll read again that section you catch what Paul's talking about. First Corinthians 12, uh, 15 verse 12, now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise and Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul is making clear what his gospel is. And in order to do that, he has to refute false teaching. How else could he possibly convince those of the truth and protect them from error if he did not explain the error in ways that uncovers all of its false thinking and explains how destructive it is? He has to do that. And the false teaching he is addressing, something he knows that, he, that threatens the very core of the gospel, is a denial of, resurre- of the resurrection. Now, denying the resurrection means that these people were thinking that the gospel had only thing about to, things to do in this world. You understand that, right? What ounce good is the gospel if you don't even believe there's a resurrection? So the people that Paul is addressing, his polemic, his theology, his explanation of the gospel, are those who think that the gospel is only of worth in this world. So we know immediately... All right, let me, let me say, in Paul's mind, in the Holy Spirit's mind, doing that would make the gospel utterly meaningless, all right? Hone in on that, if in this life only phrase, because it's really important. What he's saying is that the gospel is not primarily concerned with our situation in this world. Yes, there are certainly influences, there are certainly impacts, great huge ones, implications for this world. But he's saying that the gospel is not primarily concerned with our situation in this world. And so when we know immediately, if someone is preaching a gospel that is primarily focused with our situation in this world, it must not be the one that Paul preached. But I wanna say that Paul is saying something even stronger than what I just did. He is saying that not only does the gospel not have all that much to do with things in this world, but that our situation as believers would actually be worse in some ways For having believed the gospel. Think about Paul's situation in this world. Was his life, quote, enhanced by believing? Hardly. He went from being a respected, highly educated, young rabbi, held in esteem by everyone, to a man who was widely hated, violently persecuted, ultimately imprisoned, and executed. Now, where does that bring your your one to ten? doesn't do it, does it? How do we know that Christ's death for sin did not solve things in this world like the the fall and the curse, which sometimes we hear people talking about today? How do we know? Because the world's still fallen! Right? There's still disease. Some of you bear the marks of disease even today. You're in this church. How is that possible? Because there's still pain and suffering. Because there's still thorns and thistles. There's still mosquitoes. <laughs> Swimming pools in Florida still have to have screens around them, right? Because there's so many mosquitoes. Friends, the, the cross is amazing. And it, it solves a really important problem. The most important problem by far. But the situation of the world's fallenness did not change. Now let me say... We could also prove this, not only by our own observations, but by Paul's experience. How did Paul know that the gospel was not mainly about things in this life? Because he was not living his best life now in prison, all right? He says in 2 Corinthians 11:24, 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. It wasn't transformed, Paul, Are you kidding? Perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, and toil and sleepness often in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. and all of that, by the way, not in demonstrating his failure to transform Corinth but brought up as very proofs of his genuine apostleship. Marks, by the way, that the false apostles did not bear. You see, the true Christian does not experience less fallenness in this world. But depending on the situation, they might experience more of it. Now, of course, there are always elements of truth in any error. that's why it ever gets a hearing, okay? It can't be completely wrong. Satan's not that dumb. It's got to have lots of elements of truth in it. Can we by the power of the Holy Spirit live better lives? Absolutely. And that's that's an implication of the gospel. Does our conversion ordinarily mean that the world around us becomes better? Absolutely. And nowhere is that more dramatically seen than in the UK. We see what the reformation did there. Is that what Christ came to accomplish by His death and resurrection? Absolutely not. He died for our sins to save His people from eternal torments in hell. Thirdly, I want to say that the gospel requires faith alone. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm sure you see what Paul is saying here. There is a gospel that can be preached. It is not ineffable. It is not ill-defined. It is not vague. Paul is very definite and precise. Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection according to scripture. And that this gospel will save you if you believe it. That's the wonderful thing about this gospel. That's why it's good news. Listen to it again. I declare to you the gospel which I've preached to you also which you also received in which you stand. By which you're saved if you hold fast the word preached. There is, where is the work in that? Friends, show me the work in Paul's gospel. There's none. There's no human work involved in this salvation. It's merely receiving the gospel in faith. And that's what Paul says all over the New Testament. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Romans 4, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes Righteousness apart from works. That is the thesis, the theme of Romans, of Galatians, of Ephesians, of everything that he wrote, because that is the essence of the gospel. All you have to do in order to have everything that the gospel promises you, and it does not promise you to have things easy in this life. In fact, it promises, the Lord says, you're going to have difficulties and persecutions in this life. But all you have to do to have everything that the real gospel promises you is to believe it and you have it. But only if you remain standing in that single body of objective truth, only if you continue believing in that, that gospel, and don't end up believing anything else, or else you will have believed in vain. That's also what, what Paul is saying, because the departure from this gospel that Paul describes here is, is very small. I want you to understand that. The men were not actually saying that salvation was by works, all right? but merely implying that Jews, this is speaking of this problem in Galatians, the Galatian heresy, they weren't saying that salvation was by works, but merely implying that Jews who are saved by grace alone and faith alone must continue to uphold the ceremonial law. And were this false gospel to rise again in our day and a man stood to oppose it, he'd probably be shouted down for nitpicking and theological witch hunting what does Paul say about this little bitty thing that's being added to his gospel? Does he say, let it go, it's no big deal, I'm sure it'll be fine? He says it's a false gospel, and people who believed it are not saved. And that no matter who preaches it, even if they're superior to him in many personal ways, that anyone who preaches that gospel are to be accursed. But those aren't friendly, happy words to say. They never have been. But this gospel is a life and death matter. And beloved, this is the reason why Paul and the God who inspired Paul's writings is at such pains to refute error. It's not an innocent elaboration on the gospel, but it's poison that good and faithful shepherds will do anything to protect their flock from. Now those are my three points. This is the gospel that Paul preached, and I want to give some applications. And the first one is this, know it. That's the gospel that Paul preached, but you ought to know it and make sure about it. You know, I praise God that I'm very confident that the gospel is preached in this church. I don't know a church that I could be more confident of that. But it's not something ever to be assumed. It's not something ever to be let alone or neglected at all. You have to make sure that you know it. This gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins was, was buried and rose again the third day. And that all who believe him, on him will be forgiven and have everlasting life. You ought to know it. I'm staying with um, a friend and I was reminded uh, of some words that I heard that I can never really forget because... Uh, in my previous career, at every single brief that we did down in Beaufort, we always heard these words, passing 6,000 feet AGL, dive recovery not initiated, eject. That's the bold face for an F-18. And the reason why someone was always asked that, and the reason why someone, there's a big book, there's lots of books, but the reason why that little bit was always being repeated is because it's the thing that could save your life. And if all those alarms are going off, and all these distractions, and you've forgotten everything else, all you have to do is remember that, and your life will be spared. Friends, that's why we must be very clear about this simple old gospel, and never let it pass into something that is assumed. Know it. Secondly, you've got to believe it. And I ask you, are you saved? As Paul would as your pastor would, as your session would, when you hear that gospel that I say, which is so marvelous, it's so simple, it's so wonderful, I'm not telling you to begin a seven-step process to become better, I'm telling you that Christ died and is risen, and if you believe that, then you have everlasting life, it's a beautiful gospel, do you believe it? If so, you are saved. You are already in possession of everything that that gospel promises. You are in possession of eternal life. Because you see, friends, the work of Christ is finished. And there's nothing more that can be added to that work. And we are free. Did you walk in today, this morning, as one who has sinned against the, the law of God? I know I have. I know that in any mention of sin, any mention even in the confession of, of sin in a prayer, I stand convicted because I wish that I had stopped sinning years ago, but I have not. But this gospel, you see, is wonderful. I haven't succeeded in transforming Newcastle and Gateshead, but this gospel works. And I already am in possession of everlasting life, having been united with Christ, and nothing can ever tear us apart. Friends, is the good news. And I, I urge you to believe it. Thirdly, I want you to hold fast to it. When you hear some sort of unfamiliar presentation, look, we live in a connected world. There are more internet means of, of communication than I, I can name. And when you come into contact with some unfamiliar presentation of the gospel, don't just assume that it's as good as the one you've already heard, and it's just some newer, fresher explication of the same old thing. If it's not the same old thing, it's not the same old thing. It isn't. And just because a good man is preaching it, better men than than me are preaching it, doesn't mean that it's true or that it's going to save you. You need to hold it up to the light. And you need to ask these questions. Does it address squarely the problem of our sin? Is it focused squarely on eternal problems of judgment and hell? And does it work entirely by grace through faith alone? If it doesn't meet those criteria, then reject it. Don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid to call it what it is. You need to hold fast what you have received because your life depends upon it and if you're a true friend of those around you, you do not let these things pass without mention. If you love them, you will seek to lovingly, lovingly and graciously correct them, lest they believe in vain. Fourthly and finally, you need to send it, meaning the gospel to the nations, because that is what we're here for. People are dying in their sins all over this world. They are no better, no worse than we are. Their problem is that they haven't heard the gospel. And the reason why they haven't heard the gospel is because a preacher has not spoken it to them. And the reason why a preacher has not preached it to them is because they haven't been sent. That's Paul's logic. And so beloved, look, if the Lord is calling you to go, you need to go. I don't intend to try to be the junior Holy Spirit and to convince you of that. I know good and well myself that if the Lord is calling you to serve as a missionary, you will go eventually. You get to choose, I suppose, the circumstances of that happening, much like Jonah. You'll go. Secondly, you'll, if the Lord is calling you to send, you'll send. In the Great Commission, in that work of going and sending, there are those only two possibilities. There's not a third. If you have any inclination to be obedient to your Lord, you will be doing one or the other of them. And my prayer is that you send in a worthy manner of the Lord. And I praise God for these 67 missions conferences. May the Lord bless in our day even greater than what we have seen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, you, Lord, that Your Word is true. We thank You that Your gospel is pure, and that it is simple, and that it has never changed, it never shall change, and nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it, and that it works. Lord God in heaven, how we pray that we would know this one true gospel that we would believe it to our salvation and we would hold fast to it as if our life depends upon it because it does. And yes, Lord, that this church, we individually and collectively would send this gospel with renewed vigor, renewed confidence that your word will not return void but will accomplish that which you have determined for it. And may we see indeed in our day reformation and revival in many places throughout this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.